Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the mask phenomenon. Then we'll broach the subject of mindless eating. We'll pay our respects to a man the world knew as Eddie Haskell. We'll have a quick chat with Kristen Bartell, a recent Old Dogs interview. We'll give you a heads up that rats can eat your car. And we'll reassure you that productivity during a pandemic is optional. The Old Dogs conversation is with Gene and John Ranahan, a couple who have found a happy home in one of the most remote places on Earth. Stay with us. So, Paul... Yeah. What's on your mind today? Probably top of mind is uh, uh, thinking about personal protective equipment, particularly masks. Yeah. What's your take on masks, Paul? Um, one is when people are wearing a mask and you're talking to them, you, you miss a lot of the visual clues right. that you get facially from people. So anyway, that's that's where I'm going with that. Uh, have you been getting out much? And if so, are you masking? Uh, when we go out, we have a mask in the car, each of us, and uh, we'll don it when we get out of the car. Uh, I find it difficult uh, in many cases to understand people, either because, you know, talking through the mask muffles what they have to say or else the visual cues. We don't realize how much we depend on facial expressions. Uh, this is something that is really part of our culture to understand the meaning of what somebody says by the expression on their face. Although you can see their eyes unless they're wearing their mask wrong. Right. But there's only so much you could do with your eyes. How, how do you show an ironic statement with your eyes? I oh, guess I, you would. I lift an eyebrow. Oh, there you go. Say, an huh? arched eyebrow. An arched eyebrow. Ah. Yes, it's very effective. You know, to, to wax I, philosophical for a moment. I think that we have always worn one sort of mask or another, don't you? I mean, we disguise our true feelings or our true nature by taking on a different persona sometimes. What do you think? Well, that, that's getting a little intense for our ramble, but <laughs> um, yes, that's, that's probably true. Some people are saying that... Uh, Wearing a mask is not going to be a passing fad that we're probably going to be doing some form of mask protection for quite a while. How are we going to be affected by that? If you think about it, if, if we are communicating with just our eyes, we are going to have to be very intuitive when we talk to people to, to catch the, uh, the hidden message. If we are going to continue to wear masks, at least on some occasions, it seems to me, Paul, that we're going to have to maybe develop an additional means of communication so that people know where we're coming from, uh, even though we've got a mask yeah. on. I mean, it's like how email and social uh, networking has developed with emojis, uh, uh -huh. uh, maybe we're Are you suggesting like a deck of emojis that we could rifle through and hold up? Yeah, like flags or something. <laughs> it's a possibility. Yeah, what else could we do? Uh, you know, uh, well, uh, mime skills. How about more mime work? Oh yeah, charades. Um, we could do charades, public charades. 
<laughs> there you go. Angry guy. Yeah, yeah. Stop through. people on the street instead yeah. of having a conversation. <laughs> just to start a game of charades. <laughs> Wonderful idea. Say, do you find yourself getting frostbite from opening the refrigerator too much while sitting out the coronavirus epidemic? I sure well, do. Well, the Japanese have a word for eating well bored. This pod nugget is from the HuffPost for May 18th, 2020. The Japanese term is kuchi sabishi, which translates literally to lonely mouth or longing to have something in one's mouth. This is certainly an elegant way to describe mindless eating. I must admit that I have been experiencing lonely mouth during our current isolation. Reaching out for comfort food is, uh, well, comforting. In my case, that would mean anything in which chocolate is the main ingredient or peanuts. Ah, here, here. There is a reason that there's a Japanese term for auto-snacking. In Japan, snack food comes in an astonishing array of flavors. For example, there are hundreds of flavors of Kit Kat bars. And Pringles flavors include fried chicken and squid, one of my favorites. I guess lonely mouths have a lot of options for company in Japan. Here's some other Japanese words that may be currently useful. A Zoom nomikai is a virtual happy hour. A walk in nature, which could burn some of those excess calories, is a shinrin-yoku, which literally translates as forest bathing. And koronobutori describes putting on pounds while in quarantine. I suppose that one sounds familiar. Yeah, corona especially. So now you have added some Japanese words to your vocabulary, which hopefully you won't need in the future. An actor named Ken Osmond died recently. Now, that name may not be familiar, but if you ever watched a TV show called Leave it to Beaver in the late 50s, you would remember a character he played named Eddie Haskell. This pod nugget is from the Associated Press for May 18th, 2020. Eddie Haskell was a superficially charming but always scheming friend of the older brother Wally. He appeared in about half of the Leave it to Beaver episodes. His sole function in the show was to get the two brothers, Wally and the Beaver, in trouble. The brothers would always get sucked into his schemes, and it would take the whole episode to repair the damage. Eddie Haskell was an original for that time in television. On other shows, young people were portrayed as earnest and charming, but Eddie was a bad kid, and he never seemed to get punished for his actions. He was the spiritual father of Bart Simpson. He was the reminder that it wasn't a fair world. Now, Ken Osmond was nothing like the character he created, but he did it so well that he had difficulty getting work as an actor once the series folded. So for 13 years, he became a motorcycle cop. He retired in 1983 after being seriously wounded in the line of duty. Osmond later returned as Eddie Haskell in the new Leave it to Beaver series during the 80s. I'm sure he had mixed feelings about the role he played because it both defined and limited his career. Ah, but for our generation, the character was an iconic image. Calling someone an Eddie Haskell created an instant picture of an untrustworthy suck-up. Hey, good work, Ken Osmond. Yeah, now didn't you secretly want to be like Eddie, Paul? I mean, just once in a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, in laughing at what he did, was kind of approving what he did. (laughs) You know? Yep, that's true. 
Kristen Henning Bartell and her husband Tom Bartell host a travel blog with suggestions for travel adventures around the world. We checked in with Kristen to see how COVID has changed their work and her thoughts about the future. Well, we're on pause. For travel bloggers, it's pretty much cut visitors to our website by oh, 70, 80%. But what we're doing is sort of pivoting and spending a little bit more time doing emails to our Travel Pass 50 subscription list and doing those with more frequency and writing about sheltering at home, things that you can do to escape the, your four walls. So we're providing some uh, information on travel planning or traveling from your living room or just uh, ideas on how we, living in small quarters, deal with uh, a lot of togetherness. <laughs> I'm interviewing a lot of people who are small tour operators who we had intended to travel with this year. Well, I'm just interested in finding out how they're managing their small businesses. My two grandkids under age four, uh, now my full-time job, uh, four or five days a week, I am there watching the kids while my son and daughter-in-law work from home. Not necessarily homeschooling, but you know, what should I do now? Read War and Peace or, you know, get on with it? <laughs> it is humbling and inspiring being with kids. It does get me outside every day because I insist that we go outside and get fresh air. The new normal for the world is going to be, uh, I think, much more cautious and careful. That could be a really good thing. And uh, at best, it'll be more appreciative of our interconnectedness. And if some of us are sick, all of us are threatened. That's the the best possible outcome. As if you don't have enough to worry about, here's something to add to the pile. Rats can eat your car. This item is from the Washington (laughs) Post for February 13th, 2020. Rats, who are known for inhabiting sewers and dumpsters, also like the warmth and shelter of the insides of a car. While nesting in your car, they can cause a lot of damage. Rats' teeth grow constantly, and they must chew on things to keep them trim. Those things include hoses and wiring. There are a couple of reasons for rats turning your auto into a car condo. As cars have gotten more sophisticated, there's a lot more wiring to support the various sensors and computers. And the wiring insulation is now soy-based rather than petroleum-based. While this may be ecologically sounder, it also makes the insulation tastier. So that's a lot to chew on. A related issue is the growing rat population that may be aided by a warming climate. While no one is really tracking rat damage to cars, AAA has warned that modern cars are a smorgasbord of tasty treats for rats. There is plenty of evidence that it is a gnawing problem. Hmm. David Albin, who lives in a residential neighborhood in San Diego, calls himself Rat King Dave. Three years ago, rats invaded the family cars, causing $2,500 of damage to one and $9,300 to another. As a result, he became obsessed with rat deterrence. If you think you have a rat problem, you can access his website, howtoPreventRatsFromEatingCarWires.com. Now say that fast and remember it, or download his ebook. Let's get them rats. I think you have to do it like like James Cagney. Hmm. 
Yeah, hey, Mitch, let's <laughs> keep those rats. Those dirty rats. That was pretty bad, wasn't it? Yeah, it sounded like Amos McCoy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> if you're feeling like you should be more productive during a pandemic, you're not alone. This item is from the Washington Post for April 6th, 2020. The country has started the process of returning to normal, but it will take months. And for some people, it can't happen fast enough. But for us boomers, we still want to go slow. After all, we are the folks most at risk. As we stay at home trying to avoid the coronavirus, we're dealing with daily bad news reports, health concerns, financial issues, reduced productivity, and just anxiety in general. This is probably not a good time to take on new challenges. Psychotherapist Dana Dorfman says, if you're carrying any guilt about not producing your best work, writing a screenplay, learning to quilt, or putting together a 1,000-piece puzzle, you have permission to let that go. Being productive in turbulent times can be therapeutic, but you have to be careful not to be driven by your goals. There are going to be days when you're less focused and more overwhelmed. That's okay. This is a very stressful time. This may mean starting your day with a simple three-point to-do list. Get those tasks done and give yourself permission to take a break. If you're feeling stuck, take some time to try something new. Take a walk. Do a crossword puzzle. Simply doing something different for a while can help you think more clearly when you return to the original task. And don't underestimate the power of doing absolutely nothing if the mood strikes you. Doing nothing is actually on my to-do list. (laughs) Yeah, and you're real good at it. He was a young man from Ohio. She was a young lady from Maine. Somehow, John and Jean Ranahan found each other and made a life for themselves that few people can match. They've traveled the world, they've lived in exotic locations and finally found a place they loved so much they decided to stay. A little island in the Pacific Ocean called Ponape. Here's how they got there. All right. Um, our daughter's here and our grandchildren. So we have two daughters, one here with two grandchildren for us, and one in England with two grandchildren for us. And so we had no reason to stay in the U.S. Uh, we want to see our grandchildren every year. It's too expensive to live in England, so we live here. It's a wonderful place. My journey started in 1962 as an AFS student when I went to the Philippines. And there I really got hooked on living in different ways. Then I got hooked on him. (laughs) (laughs) The next step was obviously going into the Peace Corps. Yeah. And somehow you talked Gene into doing that? No, no. no, Not the Peace Corps. Not the Peace Corps. I decided to join the Peace Corps before I met John. Just about everything else about our moves has been connected with John wanted to. But that one, (laughs) I independently decided on. And I decided on that uh, going in the Peace Corps before I knew her, too. Well, then, what did this independent decision, how did it bring you two together? Well, that is not what brought us together. He was at Bowdoin, Mm -hmm. a men's college at the time. I was at St. Joseph's, a women's college at the time. And we had a mixer. You know, it all worked out the way it was supposed to. <laughs> not, not very creative. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Filipinos call it hollow, hollow. Here we call it mix, mix. <laughs> well, you spent quite a bit of time out in uh, Micronesia. Uh, and then you decided to uh, leave Micronesia and I think go back to the States, right? 
Yeah, we went back to the States primarily because Gene wanted the kids to be Americans, not Marshallese. And I went along with her, somewhat reluctantly, but I went. And then we were there for, what, 20 years or so? Maine, Wisconsin, and then mostly in Ohio. Mm -hmm. What were you connected with then, during that time in your life? What were you basically doing? Teaching, right? I was private school teaching, except for one year when I was an exterminator. (laughs) Were you an exterminator of students? Well, I felt like it sometimes, but no, I was uh, in Maine. For I was a year as an exterminator in Maine. Okay. So then after that, it's all private school teaching. Okay, twenty years, and then suddenly you got the bug or something, right? What happened? Well, that started in nineteen ninety three when I got really, really sick and almost died. And at that point, I decided, and Gene agreed that there was something else in life besides teaching in Ohio. And we started looking around. Took us a couple of years, but we went in the international schools starting in 1995. And where did that take you? Manila. Trinidad. And Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And Thailand for me. And did that turn out to be what you were hoping it would be? More. More than. Yeah. It Let's, was wonderful. Tell me about that. I think that's when I really realized that I loved being an expat. There's something about just getting off a plane and being met by a group of kind of like-minded people that like to have a good time and worked hard. We met a lot of wonderful people, and they were all teachers, and I, some of the finest teachers I ever met and worked with were in those schools. It was, it was a good professional and personal experience. Now, when you were in Trinidad, you pretty much lived on a sailboat, didn't you? Starting in, what, 74? Not while we were 94, 94, excuse me. We actually finished teaching in the international schools. And then we went back and lived on the sailboat for a couple of years before changing locations. (laughs) (laughs) There was something rather dramatic about changing locations at that point. You changed locations from Trinidad to Micronesia. And uh, you actually changed in a, in a very special way, John, because you had a sailboat and you didn't want to sell it. You didn't want to lose it. So what did you do with it? I sailed it to Ponape, 11,000 nautical miles. <laughs> I did have help. It wasn't single-handed. Well, I'm foolish to sail that far, but not that foolish to do it by myself. And did you lose any hands? Well, I had a couple leave the boat, but I didn't lose them. <laughs> <laughs> You successfully sailed this, what is it, 30-foot catch? It was a 31-foot sloop. Sloop, all the way from Trinidad through the Panama Canal, across the Pacific Ocean. Yep, down through French Polynesia, Mm -hmm. and then came north across the equator, and wound up here in Ponape. And Gene, how did you get there? On United Flight. (laughs) (laughs) I did not sail with John, and, and the timing is a little different. Actually, we were in Trinidad, and to tell you the truth, we were running out of money, and Sean had talked about coming here to start a dive business, and I knew I didn't want to be here with nothing to do, so I applied for work at the College of Micronesia, and I got the job. So I came here, and I was here several months before John arrived. Well, I came out here in 2008 and worked for the college, too, Mm -hmm. for a while. Then I went 
back to Trinidad in 2010 and sailed the boat here in 2010. Hmm. Went back to work after I got back here. Mm-hmm. Did you start your diving business then? Uh, I, I was teaching at the college mm-hmm. uh, for a while. I finally started the dive business about three years ago. Okay, now, John, I, I have to ask you this. Most people who start a dive business are probably in their 30s. I happen to know how old you are. <laughs> I'd like to know what possessed you to to start a dive business at your age. This is something in particular that I think is inspiring to other people who are of our age. Well, it's the same kind of foolishness of getting in a 31-foot sailboat and sailing across the ocean. That was physical risk. This is different kind of risk, but struggling, you know, but we're keeping at it. And it wasn't a sudden decision. We were here visiting Lisa, and he met some family friends of Lisa's, and this guy wanted to start a dive business. And John had been a dive instructor instructor anyway. And when he told me that he wanted to come back here to do a dive business, and I'm a bit aghast because it didn't fit with what we thought we were going to do. And he said, but this is what I've wanted to do all my life. And I thinking about it at the time, I knew immediately he was right. That's what he wanted to do all his life. John is happier on or preferably in the water than he is on land anyway. He's always been that way. So in the, the experiences that you have had as a diving instructor and as a diver, what do you think is the most dangerous situation you've faced? Probably the most dangerous situation I've been in as a diver was in the northern Galapagos. Uh, we were diving and there were just lots and lots of sharks and some pretty aggressive bull sharks and silky sharks. And one bull shark start, look, began an attack on the group we, I was in. And we fended it off by just getting together and pretending we were one big organism with lots of little sticks and stuff. And the shark stopped its attack. It was kind of scary, though. <laughs> but you're laughing yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Who yeah, had the yeah. last laugh? Gene, in your experiences in teaching at the College of Micronesia, which couldn't have been very old at the time that you started there, uh, what has been your greatest challenge? Kind of accepting the level of abilities of my students, the background. When I arrived, I came with expecting standards like U.S. standards mm-hmm. or international school standards. And then when they, it was so clear that things were not that way, I thought, well, I'll just fix it. I'll fix it fast, you know, because <laughs> I know how things are supposed to be. And I've, I've realized it can't be fixed fast and people don't want it fixed fast. And a lot of it doesn't need to be fixed. I'm getting to be able to adjust and respect and admire what a lot of people are doing here. That's actually very well put, uh, and it leads into my final question, and that is, what have you learned? What life lesson or lessons have you learned? I just see when I think of my life and what I've learned, I would imagine it's very much like anybody else has learned. You know, we, we learn. Whatever we're doing, we learn and we grow, and each of the decisions of where to go have not been, let's go see the world. It's uh, where can we get a job and work at something we do well and also have a good time? And I don't think that's very different from from what 
we would have done if we had stayed in the U.S. I'm reminded of Joseph Campbell. And he says, you know, follow your passion. Find something you like doing and do it. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And while you're there, why don't you drop us a comment? Tell us how we're doing. It's helpful. So stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.